Hey everyone, um, great to have you back. It was uh, a little bit nostalgic this weekend as someone that a lot of people here know very well, Gatano Denardi was up here in Boston, came up for the day to shoot a, a live podcast in the studio. It was great to see him and I had to express a lot of gratitude for the guy because for those of you that don't know, we just randomly got together and decided to have this Zoom call called Demand Gen Live one, one day in the beginning of the pandemic in, in late March of last year. And it's turned into something really cool. It's turned into a community of amazing people. It's turned into this weekly event that you all participated in, make it continue to make it an awesome event that people can listen to on a podcast. It has turned into uh, one of the, I think one of the strongest B2B marketing podcasts out there. And so just taking a little bit of minute to reflect, it was uh, awesome. By the way, the show with Katana will probably come out in about a week in both uh, HD video as well as on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. We're trying to step up the content game. Anyone that's looking to step up their own can start to learn some of the things that we're, we're trying ourselves here. And happy to help if you have questions on what we're, what we're doing and what we're learning. So let's get into the agenda here. The place where I want to start is this topic called the demand waterfall. Is it time for a new demand model? And I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I feel like at this stage, having been exposed to over 50 Salesforce instances in the past two years, looking deeply um, inside of B2B SaaS companies that are running the demand waterfall model, as well as talking to hundreds of other executives or marketers in B2B companies about what's going on. I do think it's time that marketers think about challenging this model. And so I'm going to go into it in a little bit of detail here. For those of you that may not know the demand waterfall, maybe we can put a link to it or something afterwards, but it's essentially drives everything from inbound to outbound into SDRs, into AEs and through the, the overall sales process. But there's a particular part, there's several, but there's a particular part of the model that I think is being um, poorly implemented and poorly used, which involves generating a high volume of low intent leads, sending them through email nurtures or other type of things that you can measure generating some type of made-up MQL score that drives outbound actions at terrible efficiency when measured against both sales qualified opportunities and revenue and the cost in order to do that. And so this model was originally created, I'm not going to state the date correctly, but it was in the mid to late 2000s. And so if you can imagine how much different it was to be a B2B marketer in 2007 versus it is today, the complete transformation of the ability for marketers to go direct to the consumer, to create demand there in places where you can target very precisely, deliver information that would otherwise need to be delivered by a sales rep and actually drive purchasing decisions as a marketer is the, is the fundamental difference. And so we have companies running this model and what I'm proposing is an, is an alternative here. So we have to look at two things. Because one part of the system is the what the sales resources would do instead. And then the next part is what the marketing resources would do instead. Right. And so as a quick refresh, we have two streams of, of people. We have low intent leads 
that are predominantly what marketers drive through performance marketing, content downloads, whether it's organic or paid. And then we have high intent leads that come to a website that convert on a high intent conversion that says they want to talk to a salesperson. And those two different streams have incredibly different conversion rates. And in order to hit the MQL targets that have been established, marketers spend all their time on the low intent leads that are cheaper and easier to create. And so if we just thought about this for a second in terms of why it would be a good idea to consider to move this is that if you have dramatically different conversion rates between these two funnels and you forgot these low intent leads and you were just able to make a marginal increase in the amount of high intent leads coming through, you would have a better impact on revenue with significantly less leads. And so what should the sales team do instead? I see a lot of smart companies right now moving to a different model. So instead of marketing, generating low intent leads that go through a bunch of marketing automation and then get called or just get called straight away, that companies are taking that sales action and triggering off of a different action called intent data that runs through some type of account prioritization filters, creates contact information, and drives outbound actions. There's two benefits to this. One, it should work better than calling content downloads or other low intent leads that don't want to that didn't ask to hear from you. It, sh- it should work better. We're going to pull data when we have enough of aggregated to really show this. And so it should work better on the outbound side. But the most important thing is that it allows your marketing team to go and spend all of their money and time doing something else. And then what marketers should do instead, right? So I think that marketing teams in general, if you look at it in three different places, you kind of have pipeline marketing, you have capturing demand, and you have creating demand. Most marketing teams only spend time on pipeline marketing or sales enablement or putting together events, that type of stuff, and capturing demand in intent channels with direct attribution, spend no time creating demand, which happens a lot in the dark funnel. And so what could marketers do instead when they don't have to generate all these leads and spend all this money? They could go out and win in the dark funnel. And so instead of the MQL hamster wheel, the marketing teams could go out and create demand inside of the dark funnel, create a competitive advantage because their customers aren't executing well there and have a dramatically better impact on driving high intent leads. And so that's what I'm thinking in terms of an alternative model. Now we need to talk about execution. So if that's the goal, if we align to at the beginning of the funnel, high intent leads that convert on a conversion on the website, and we're measuring on SQOs or qualified pipeline, depending on the ACVs and revenue, then it comes down to the overall execution, right? I think that in terms of capturing demand and pipeline marketing, I think a lot of people have that dialed in. I think a lot of people overspend on capturing demand because they don't know how to create demand effectively. And so if you were able to drive efficiencies in those two parts of the funnel, you could invest even higher in creating demand, which by far is the most effective way to do it today. And then you could spend, instead of spending all of your money driving ebook downloads on LinkedIn that never close, you could take all that money and create content that could be driven through LinkedIn ads. You could start a community. You could start a podcast. You could host events that people love. You could think about word of mouth, uh, your word of mouth strategy, which we're going to lay out the six pillars later in this episode, which I'm really excited about. Those are the things that you could do instead. And the things that I listed off done well, I think are things where marketers really lack inside of B2B companies because of the lack of measurement. Now, when we change this model, there's three things that need to change. If company buys in, executives talking like, yeah, this sounds great, Chris, we're going to have to do it. There's three things that need to change. One is the executive mindset about what marketing is trying to do. 
the mindset of marketers when they're executing inside of these channels, specifically within the, the, the dark funnel or difficult to measure channels mindset. We're going to need new metrics. We're going to talk through new metrics. And then we're going to need number three, a fundamentally different expectation of the time to results because the results that you're driving are completely different. Driving sales qualified opportunities that your sales team is going to close at 30% versus collecting email addresses is a completely different outcome. We need to think about time in a completely different way in these things. And what we're going to do at Refine Labs is to look at all the data across the 30 plus B2B SaaS companies that we've been running with. And we're going to identify what are the metrics that you need to measure on? What is the appropriate timeline? What is the appropriate impact that you should be seeing over time to help people move, to give executive confidence and help people move to a different model that objectively is more buyer-centric and works better? And would love to... uh, maybe entertain a few questions or comments on this one. Um, our friend, David, let's see, he just dropped a, a comment. Do you want to, do you want to come on David and say a few things? Uh, sure. Hi. I love this topic. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> it's a great topic. So I started using the serious decisions waterfall, which I think is the one that you're mostly referring to. And it's the one that often gets talked about mm-hmm. in 2006. And it was a very, very useful framework because it defined steps in a process and handoff points in relationships in an organization. And it was originally designed for very large companies of that day that were selling to enterprises. So your Oracles, your CAs, your IBMs and semantics and so forth and so on. Over the years, it's seen three updates. So there's now four models. And the most recent model is very different from the original model. But interestingly, we still talk about some of the terms that are only in the first model, MQLs, SQLs, SALs. Mm -hmm. Inquiries have become forgotten, which used to be the base point. Anyway, I love the idea of evolving the measures. And I've written about this a few times. I think to be successful to, to evolve the measure, We have to understand that the measure is a habit and that we as marketers have got this habit. And to replace a habit, like with any type of habit that we might have, we have to understand what it's a response to. And it's kind of a response to the trigger and the question being, how are we showing value? So this is why I love this topic. And I think, Chris, you're you're going to be able to kind of smash the whatever it is that needs to be smashed or help evolve it anyway, right? By offering something else to measure, that can be linked to some amount of predictability of outcome, then an alternative response can be applied to the trigger question, how are we measuring value? So it's not that the framework is wrong, just like meters and centimeters and millimeters are not wrong. They just measure. A millimeter is not wrong. Mm-hmm. An MQL is not wrong. It's just measuring. It's just how you apply it. So um, I just wanted to kind of, kind of applaud you and hope that you have success in being able to offer a framework of alternative measures that can be predictable or somewhat predictable and applicable so that we don't kind of get stuck within the measuring and forget what the purpose of the measure was, which was to measure the handoff points and measure a process. That was the purpose Mm -hmm. of the model and it's evolved over over the years. So I've just 
kind of stated a bit of a background thing and a, and a thesis, I suppose, would love you know, your thoughts on what can be some replacement measures so that we can run two parallel measurement systems to kind of calibrate ourselves and then throw away the old one and, and, and retain the newer one. Mm-hmm. First off, I, I love the context that you've, you know, you've been using it for a long time. The experience is super, super helpful. One, one note about the predictability is that I go inside of the data and when you look at it against metrics that matter to the business, I would argue that it's not predictable. Or if it is predictable, it's predictably terrible in terms of overall conversion rates. It has nothing to, you know, nothing to do with you, but that's just what I see in the data. And so it's a it's more of a it's more of a challenge for people that are listening to this afterwards is like it might feel predictable because it feels safe and accepted. But if you actually looked at it objectively, I would argue that it it may not be predictable. It's just been well-defined, as you mentioned. In terms of the measurements, I see two streams evolving for this, just like at the beginning of, I don't know if it was Rev 1 or Rev 4 on the demand waterfall, but you have inbound and outbound as as, as beginning sources. And so on the inbound side, the first step is redefining the lead to a lead with a firmographic qualified account and demographic qualified persona submitting that with a high intent conversion that asked that said they asked to talk to sales on the website. If you redefine that lead, that's what I think that stream should become. It removes the inbound SDR. Those go directly to account executives. You optimize that funnel because that is going to be the most scalable, the best revenue generating channel for your business long-term when, when it's done well. And so I think that one's pretty locked in from the form submission down. What we're going to do next is we're going to look at all of the associated metrics around at the beginning, because that's where companies get scared. They get scared because they don't because they don't have a form fill, or they, they don't have a low intent lead that they need some other type of indicators. And we're going to start to look into the data across a lot of different companies to identify what are the indicators that are always positively correlated with the outcomes that we're looking for, and then start to look start to test that in more detail. And then on the outbound side, when you don't have inbound SDRs calling all those people, those resources could be redeployed to outbound that get triggered off of intent data. That intent data is going to come from somewhere. Right now, marketers are not out creating demand. So that intent, they have no control. The intent data is just showing up and then their sales team is calling. And what I'm suggesting is that if you ran this model and you created demand in the dark funnel, you would create intent, which would have more signals that are associated with your brand impressions that would then drive outbound actions that would be more effective. And so it's adding another layer to outbound. Customers that work with us report that over a period of time. And then you would go and have an outbound stream that would be very similar, except that would be SDR meeting AE in a like a more traditional outbound model. But the trigger right now that's coming through a lot of marketing effort would be triggered in a different way that requires it requires very little marketing effort or dollars in order to actually create the contact, which obviously can be sourced through a ton of different data providers very easily today. And those would be the two streams. And then we need to set the metrics at the top. And so on the outbound side, it's definitely going to be, you know, intent account engagement growth in target accounts. I think that's a very clear one because that's, that will be the, the prerequisite to the outbound action. And on the inbound side, we got to do a little bit more digging in order to figure out what those exact metrics are. And I just don't want to misspeak. So I'm going to Right, absolutely, and you know, that, and that's fair and fine. Happy to chat with you further on this because it's a it's a topic I think is one that's ripe 
for um, some kind of overthrow and revolution. And some of what you said, I think, doesn't impact. There's the use of the word model or motion. Mm-hmm. So maybe I misunderstood the, the way you were using the word model, but the traditional kind of serious decisions framework yeah. of words is still directly applicable today. It's just whether you ought to or should. And the problem most of the time that I see is the definitions are loose and bandied around. And the, um, the job of trying to find quality is getting lost in the quantity, which is something you've pointed out many, many times. But mm-hmm. the model itself doesn't actually try and say, generate junk. It's just that trying to achieve certain numbers because of certain metrics and KPIs, that generates the junk. But the, the model itself doesn't say, what we want you to do mm-hmm. is generate junk, sure. it at the top of the process, and then you've got a lot of things that you can start to kind of see run through the process. That's not what the model asks for. The model mm-hmm. just actually defines handoff points and tries to offer a framework of language that you should all agree to within sales and within marketing and across marketing and across sales as to what they mean. So that when you have a conversation, you don't use the word lead ever, hopefully, because it means 10 different things to 10 different people, but you have a more precise type of language. That was at least the idea behind it originally. Now it's evolved mm-hmm. a couple of steps since then. And um, you know Chase Cunningham over at uh, Forrester would be a, an awesome person to have a conversation with because <laughs> he's kind of like the, the man behind the, with the machine there yeah, um, evolving the thought on that on the serious decisions of what used to be the serious decisions waterfall today. I got it right here. <laughs> Maybe it's exactly. not the most up to date one, but I I do have it right here. And absolutely, and it's not simple. Absolutely, it's not simple. And actually, that's perhaps part of the problem, is that the original, very original waterfall, which is the one that's still sticky, that we all talk about from two thousand and six, has been cast aside by the, the, the analysts, and, and they've got something so much better, mm-hmm. but it's so complicated, nobody really knows what it is. What big consulting firms and analyst firms do. Something like that. All right, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll put myself on mute. I, this is a great topic, yeah, and I think no. it's one that we'll always come back to, and, and thank you for trying to offer something different and, and, and better. Indeed, we're going to try to articulate this visually and get some feedback so people can sort of see what I mean. I'm trying to get my thoughts out right now because honestly talking to all of you helps me like sort of formalize or put my thoughts together so i appreciate that dialogue david i think omar Omar, do you have your hand raised do you want to come on in here and chat yeah yes next hey guys how's it going can you hear me yeah go ahead great great so i'm going to try and be as concise as possible just to provide some context and background and i'd love to hopefully be a guinea pig to report back on this so as a resident scientist of <laughs> demand gen lab. So Chris, I took a lot of your uh, advice to heart and, you know, I guess internally. So again, for context for everyone, I'm at a um, B2B FinTech SaaS company where we sell to small businesses, specifically medical practices. And so day one, it was about leads, leads, leads. We need demos and everything. And I didn't have a foot to stand on. And so, you know, we, we, we did that, delivered a lot of MQLs surprisingly through paid LinkedIn, we're literally running lead gen for getting a demo or billing assessment, right? And lo and behold, we spent a significant amount of money and none of that really converted. In parallel, because I did not have data, I was doing what you know you talk about all the time in Dimension Live, which is splitting the funnel, finding the awareness channels where your end customer is, providing that value, creating that you know buyer intent, and then having them come inbound to you. So fast forward a few months, 
Last month, we had a big decision where it's like, look, we're spending all this money on paid social media and the the leads aren't aren't of good quality. You're not converting. And I said, well, you know, I, that's what I've, what I've been saying, but, you know, I didn't have any data to back that up at the time. And so in May, we cut our paid social media spend like 90%, okay? And June, coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, we had a lot of high value marketing activities happening. We had some webinars going. We, I relaunched our, our podcast, all these things, which essentially signaled to the buyer to essentially get value from us. And in that process, get exposure to what we do as a company. And more specifically, you know, we're trying to do also some category creation at the same time. So now at the end, the end of the end of June, I looked at the re, you know, uh, revenue source instead of marketing source. And guess what? The main revenue sources are coming from organic channels, right? Mm-hmm. Or referrals from internal customers or even partners, right? And so even my head of sales, who's fantastic, and I'm very lucky to have him, looked at the data and said, hey, you know, we're looking at MQL, SQL conversions. And even though the number went down, the quality has gone up in the last 30 days. And I think you should be reporting on that because, yeah, we're getting less, but the quality is going up. I don't know why or how. Mm-hmm. And so... On Thursday, I'm having a meeting with the founders to review, hey, here's what happened in H1. Here's what we're going to do in H2. And then I'm going to reveal that, that to the team. So my question to you is, I'm realigning the organization to say, this is going to be the plan. I've gotten them so far, for the most part, away from getting obsessive about MQLs. And I want to realign us about what are the metrics that actually matter. So inbound uh, with last attribution of like organic is one of those things I have everybody on board for. My question to you is that as we split the funnel, there's going to be transactional metrics, you know, like demos booked and, and, and revenue source that we got to look at. But for the things that are more dark funnel, where we're doing things in awareness channels, what are the metrics we should start looking around? Because that's where I have to say, these are the data points that we're going to go back to, and they're going to be the source of truth. Sorry for the long intro, but I hope that provides some context. That and I'd like to come well, back in a, in a couple of weeks and report to you what exactly happened. <laughs> that intro was completely illustrative of the change that I'm talking about, right? So moving away from the MQL focus, which it creates leads at super low efficiency that sales thinks that they want or executives think that sales needs to mm-hmm. moving to a different model that generates high intent leads that sales likes that convert at a super high rate and end up generating more revenue. That's the change. Now, it's interesting how you got there, right? Because the organization needed to see it for themselves with their own data, which I've done as well. And I continue to do it with a bunch of companies to show them what's actually happening. It's not hard to do, but a lot of people don't do it. And so showing them that data allowed them to begin to think about changing their mindset. Right. And then once the mindset changed, you could think about adjusting the metrics, which you did, which allowed in June for a completely different execution model that drove way better results. And that is, that's the change that needs to happen in that order, which is incredible. A couple things. So one, this is unrelated to your question, but one thing that you should do is you should look at that high intent funnel with those conversion rates, map it against your goals for the rest of the year. Um, you are probably have pipeline and revenue goals. So you want to, for this one, look at, at pipeline because of sales cycle lag. Maybe your sales cycle short, but you probably want to look at qualified pipeline for this. And then rebuild your model with those conversion rates and figure out what you need at the top and align on that number, which will be super way lower than an MQL target with bad conversion rates. I help Mm -hmm. companies do this. Like I mentioned, going from 36,000 MQLs as the target in 2020 
1,200 MQLs or what I would call high intent leads as a, just a different, different measure from 36,000 to 1,200. And with the model showing 200% increase in pipeline, and that's what we want to get to. So that was just a sidebar for some people. In terms of surrogate metrics, I don't have this 100% figured out, but I'll brainstorm some things with you. Yeah, please. So things that we are looking at that can be easily quantitatively measured. One, as long as you're not running any performance marketing directly to your high intent page, you should be looking Give at... Give me an example of a high intent page, like a demo request. What's a demo? Yeah. Whatever the main nav CTA is, it's speak to an expert, get a demo, get pricing, one of those things. As long as you're not running performance marketing to that page, if you were, you could filter it out, but I don't recommend doing that, that you could look at the amount of page views and conversion and conversion rate on that page. That's the indicator right before somebody converts to know whether or not that's going up, going down or staying stable. So that's a good one to look at. The next one would be, I would look at traffic that lands on the homepage that comes from either separately or in, in aggregate branded paid search, organic search and direct traffic and understand whether that that is going up or down because the work that you're doing will create um, interest and word of mouth that will drive people through that path, right? The ideal path is through those sources, to the homepage, to the mm -hmm. conversion convert. So you're working backwards through it and setting up KPIs. And so that's what I would look at. And then you need to start breaking it into the different channel levels. So you need to understand what are the channels that are driving people to do that. There's going to be organic market demand. People are just finding you based on word of mouth. There's some amount there. You might have some from paid search or you know affiliate referral sites that are all easily attributable. So in the capturing demand bucket and organic market demand, you can pretty much estimate organic market demand and then calculate almost exactly what you should get from those other channels on a monthly basis. So you have those set. And then in all of the rest of the channels, it's dark, right? You're not going to have attribution. It's more qualitative and feelings. Like so the podcast, for example. Podcast, organic social events, influencer marketing. There's a plenty of different things. And so at that, at that point, you need to be in the channel looking at qualitative metrics about what is going on in the channel and make a decision about the level of impact that that channel is having. It's not going to be perfect. I know that this answer is not perfect. I'm going to work on trying no, no, no. to be a little bit cleaner. Yeah. So I completely, I completely agree with you. And so on the qualitative metrics, right? Let's look, take a pick, a perfect example, which I've been, I've been fighting the good fight on, which is LinkedIn organic, where actually technically we had one major customer come out of, right? What are some qualitative metrics you're looking at there? Like one of the things I think of is to show, look, the number of people who fit in our ICP who came in through LinkedIn organic just to sign up for our webinar. And now like they're in our system where we can deliver content with them and have that engagement. Is that the right way to think about it? That would be quantitative and you would just be first, first touch attribution from a channel, oh, right. yeah. touch attribution from a channel. But some things in the in the qualitative indicators, some ideas would be if you decided to put a how did you hear about us on your form, some companies do that to get this we data. We just put that. That would uh, allow qualitative into quantitative. Alternatively, you could have your sales reps ask or you could try and see if people just openly bring it up without being prompted inside of sales calls, which happens to us a lot. So if you're executing well, people will tell you in sales calls. Inside of the additional channel, it's a lot of the things that we continue to talk about. It's like who's liking the post, who's engaging, who's sending you messages. It's I'm continu consistently fascinated. I get 
I don't know, three to five, at least three to five direct messages from CMOs inside of LinkedIn that says, you know, while you're talking, it feels like you know exactly who I am. I've been watching your videos for nine months. I've never liked, I've never commented, and now can we work together? Right. And so yeah. that stuff yeah. is that stuff's not there. It's just pure like it's feeling and believing, right? Like it's hard to explain. Like there's no way you're gonna figure that out except for view, like view metrics and other things like that. And so, but without that, without the tracking on that or getting the DM, everything that you can measure in the channel is so positively correlated already that you don't need further justification. Got it. And maybe one of those qualitative things, at least I did this last year and actually again, this was this came from 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 your show was when we had physicians comment on some of our our pieces. I actually just took screenshots of those comments and put it on a slide so the board could see like qualitative, like, oh, the chief of this division, I don't know who is 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 at least engaged with our content. Mm-hmm. Um, one yeah. last thing just to just to, again, comments, to say I just want to drop this in, but don't, oh, please. Don't yeah. the question. In some channels at certain times, it doesn't exist right now, but it did in 2017, 18, is that I could run Facebook ads to respiratory therapists and ER nurses and have 50 conversations with people that work inside of our target accounts inside of Facebook comments, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing that gets tracked, none of that gets measured. I don't I don't see that effect happening on many channels right now, but that's that is real, right? Like those touches are important and impactful. And for whatever reason, I haven't been able to find a way to get executives to value that comment thread that you go back and forth with the chief of emergency medicine at, you know, Rainbow Children's Hospital or something to value that conversation at this as the same level as, as a SDR booking a meeting. Yeah. And I, at least from, from my perspective, when I've been trying to show it qualitatively, I try and tell, you know, show our team that, Hey, like this is technically your, your meeting before the meeting where you can show value and authority and, and understanding of the problem and solution. And it's going to make them more interested to at least take you seriously and meet with you. And you're being looked at now as an advisor and not just like a salesperson, mm-hmm. you know, but I'll send you, you know, more on, on what's happening. And the last thing I was going to say, I know this will make you very happy. Yeah. Uh, the thing I left out was when we looked at um, uh, like source of revenue and the data was very clear, like right, right now this early, and we're a series A company. So at this stage, there's a huge difference in, um, uh, or, again, organic, organic social and referrals. And then right next to it, like direct and organic search. Mm-hmm. But then when we looked at pipeline velocity, the stuff that was inbound, with la- you know like last touch attribution of, of organic the pipeline velocity it was it it was half the time mm-hmm. from book demo to close compared to the paid channels so it was like a fantastic uh result and again i i, I credit you to you know change you know sort of reorienting the way i look at these things and 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 sort of asking harder questions about how we can do it better so thanks again chris mm-hmm. There was a point where marketers needed to do marketing without all the stuff that we have for tracking. And it wasn't that long mm-hmm. ago, right? And so if you imagine yeah. Nike in 1997, right? Like they had some measurement, they did some surveys, they looked at sales revenue as a way to quantify whether or not they were really successful. And I'm not sure why B2B companies can't get there, right? Like there is an idea that there are channels that you can accurately track for specific reasons. And then there's all these different things where you just need to architect the mix. It's it's mm-hmm. not it's not 100% pure science. There's a lot of art to it. It's marketing. I agree. That's and something that I'm trying to get people there because we've skewed way too far, and it's just it's restricting people from doing really great work. 
thank God nobody listens to you know. And well, I'm waiting for 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 someone outside of my team to get jump on and be like, you hear Omar talking about this? You know, the the thing I think that keeps happening because working with at a startup, it's one of those things where every, somebody go, goes and reads TechCrunch or they talk to some random person. They're like, oh, we should do, you know, like Google ads. Or and there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like the measure is that people get, they romanticize this idea of data and growth levers, which, which exists. But then when you dig deeper, it's like, oh, you're looking at things that are literally from the B2C world or, or B2B companies with an ACV less than a thousand dollars. And it's like, you can't think of it like that. Mm-hmm. And I think on the B2B side, you're absolutely right that it is science and art. Science part is like, yeah, there are things that you can track attribution, look at data and everything. But on the other side of it, like, look, I don't have like hundreds of thousands of customers to sell to, mm-hmm. right? It's not like, you know, for me, maybe it's in the thousands, but I think there's this qualitative side that to be frank, I think people are just lazy. And if you have to go and do anything manual, it feels like you're doing something that's prehistoric or something. But I think that there's a lot of insights that you miss in the data. Maybe you can call it small data. I don't know. But I think you're absolutely right about that. Awesome. Great chat. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks, Megan. Great to hear about the success too. Keep us posted on how that's going. Will do. Yeah. Good luck, Omar. Great dialogue there. I love it. I have a few other questions that are that are sort of different from this topic. We feel like we want to. I want to roll roll into two, and then we'll get the get the questions. Let's um, do it. All right. So where we're going here, and this one is, I was literally just just so people understand how we got here. I was writing my LinkedIn post today. I was like, I have to put in the comments what we're going to talk about on Demand Gem Live. What am I going to talk about? I mentioned word of mouth in the post, and then I was like, like if we had to build a strategy to say, what is our comprehensive like ability to drive more word of mouth in the market? What would that be? And so I've come up with the six pillars to build your word of mouth strategy. And I'll walk through them because each of them can have a huge impact in different ways. And the way that I got here was thinking about, I, I mentioned it in the post, it's I don't believe that companies have a strategy or thought about what they're doing to create word of mouth in the market, which is the most effective way that drives B2B buying decisions today. And so what are the things that you could do? And maybe what tactically inside of those different things could you do in order to make this happen more? So number one is obvious. I think most companies do it and recognize it. So I'm just going to get it out of the way, which is some combination of product and customer success. So having customers that love your product, that are great fits, that get value from it, that want to tell other people is step one. That one's obvious. We'll, we'll kind of pass by here, although there's a kind of have a secondary point. If we're going to go a little bit further on that one, something that you could think about doing is some level of personalized surprise and delight to customers with no expectation of anything back. I think that when companies actually do this, they're trying to get a lead into an upsell or trying to get into a conversation to expand or something like that. And so instead of thinking about it with that mindset, just thinking about like being a human with your customer and recognizing that something's going on in their life, like they're having a baby or they just moved into a new home or they just raised another round of funding and providing a personalized gift that helps them or that not necessarily helps them, but celebrates whatever's going on in their life in a thoughtful way to drive brand affinity, 
stickiness, retention, things like that. And also when you do those things without expecting anything back, oftentimes people will go and tell a bunch of people or post about it on LinkedIn or anything else. So that's just one thing that you could do as an extra on that strategy. Next one is content. So I'm not sure that people really understand how much content can be shared, which is a mechanism of word of mouth and exposure to new people in this like super distributed way. And so if you create good information that people, one, they want to talk about, right? So I'll give you a couple levels. I post a video on LinkedIn. The marketing manager sees it. The marketing manager then go ask the CMO about something. That could be one way. I post a piece of content on LinkedIn. The marketing manager sees it. The marketing manager shares it with the CMO, passes the piece of content along. Or the mark, I post a piece of content on LinkedIn. The marketing manager sees it. The marketing manager shares it in one of their Slack channels that involves other people in the marketing department or perhaps leadership of other functions. Or the marketing manager shares it outside of their organization, inside of a Facebook group that then gets exposed to 300 other companies. And so you can see how one piece of content that touches one person, if it hits appropriately, can spread in a bunch of different areas. And then imagine putting out a piece of content that the first touch is 10,000 people and how that can get redistributed over and over to different people, which is just quote unquote earned distribution or shareability. That's what I want people to think about. In order to get there, you need to create content that people really want to share. And then you need to get it to them in ways where they actually consume it. And then you need to be able to execute that on a repeatable basis where you consistently get better. And so those, t- those three things, overall content strategy, distribution strategy, and consistency. Companies will miss on one, if not all three of those in terms of their overall organic or paid content strategy that's not driven through SEO. So content can create massive word of mouth in the market in addition to what's already going on with successful customers in the product. What I just mentioned there could be people that have never heard of my company, have never used our product or service, and you can still get that amplification because the content is good. The next one I'll go into is events. And so the ability to put on a strong experience for people is another one that can create word of mouth, whether that's physical, hybrid, or virtual. All three of them can work. But what can you do inside of the event so that one, people talk about the event before they come, and then people talk about the event after they come and share. And so when companies go into the mindset of an event, I even had one today where someone was like, hey, you want to speak on my event? I'll send you the lead list afterwards. And I was like, that is, that's the last reason why I would do, would speak at an event is to get the, the lead list of registrants, right? People send me the lead list and I don't even look at it. And so that's how a lot of companies approach events is in order to get leads. And if you thought about it a different way and said, how do we use this to create an incredible experience so that people talk about it with other people or talk about the things that they learned with other people, you might produce a different event you probably would produce a much different event if you did it that way. The next one is community. Whether you own the community or you're participating in other communities, it doesn't matter. Obviously, owned is the preferred, but you can definitely do both and you can definitely just go into other communities if that's the play that works best for you right now. 
this is just about being active and being visible and helping people in real time. And so um, I don't I don't spend a lot of time participating in Revenue Collective, but I look a lot. Um, I'm watching a lot inside of Dave Gerhardt's Facebook group. I watch a ton inside of LinkedIn. So those are places where I'm watching. It might be different for your buyers, but spending time in the community as just a point of brand visibility and connecting you to something that's valuable, I think is is incredible. Obviously, building the whole community from the beginning would create a a more dramatic impact on that one. We got two pillars. I think we have, I think we're four through. We got two pillars left. The next one is something that we've been I've been thinking about a lot. We're going to probably implement this at Refine Labs called something along the lines of the VIP customer list, and something that I think software companies could implement and get a lot of success with, which involves taking a specific set of customers that love your product already that are power users that might already be telling a lot of people already and doing a ton of awesome stuff for them to continue to fuel that. A special event that they come to in physical, fully paid expenses, paid trip to somewhere where they get to spend time with all of their peers that do great work with that specific tool. If they're content creators, then you could put on something where they could create content with a ton of smart people. They could get swag, shout outs, beta of products. There's a million things that you could do as a company. You reverse engineer what those people would want, but leaning into the people that are already love your brand and already are promoting it is something to make it go faster. Is something that I think companies miss on. I think it's a huge opportunity. And then the last one we got here is influencer marketing, which somebody wanted to reposition as peer relationships today. I've been calling it brand collaborations. And back in 2014, when I did this, we called it key opinion leaders. And so in the med tech, like that type pharma space, you would actually call them key opinion leaders. And so I just want to call out for a couple of things. One, influencer marketing is not new. It's been happening since Nike decided to sponsor Jordan a long time ago, right? So it's been happening for, it's been happening way before that, in fact. And we used it in a lot of times to have a speaker go to a conference and talk about how they use our product in 2014. And so I'm just trying to help people understand that there's a lot of ways that you can do this authentically in a B2B environment that makes a ton of sense, drives a big impact. That's a lot different than how people think about how it would be executed based on what they're seeing in B2C. And so inside of influencer marketing, there are a lot of different strategies that you could take that I would encourage companies that are already hitting their goals that already have some of the other parts of this engine running like content, a podcast, maybe events to then start to lean into this, have influential people come to your events. You could just generally build relationships with those people so that when they're trying to make, when they're making recommendations, I can't um, tell you how many times I get asked the same question about what tool should I use for this? Oftentimes, I don't use one of those tools, and I just have the one that's top of mind for me that I recommend to people. I think I'm imagine, and I've never used the tool, so I imagine a lot of people have that same type of thing happening to them in some sort of volume where they're recommending a product that they just know other people love that they haven't used. So that's something to to think about here. And those type of ideas would make up, I think, the six pillars of how you could drive amplified, accelerated word of mouth in the market, which would drive more people in because more people are talking about you and aware of you. 
if I look at this list at Refine Labs, we're actively executing five out of these six. And a lot of, I hear a lot of people, we see Refine Labs everywhere because their content's being shared. A lot of people are talking about this. We only have 35 people that work here. Imagine the company that has 500 people that with way more resources that just raised $500 million that what they could do, right? And so that's what I want people to think about. It's working for us. I would highly encourage people to consider doing some of these things. And when you look at the tactics, you might be like, oh, we're doing a couple of these tactics. It's not about doing events. It's about how you do them. It's not about creating content. It's about what content you create, where you distribute it. Each of these things, it's not about the what, it's about the how in order to get this done. And so I think through my explanation, I hope I help clarify some of those things for people and would love to pause and have some dialogue with some of our friends. Awesome, Chris. Jennifer had a great question around the content pillar and um, some questions on distribution. So Jennifer, you're on. Go ahead and ask your question live. Hi. So, um, okay. So you've, you've identified some content that you think your customers are going to consume. Uh, you've created your podcast. You've got everything going. What do you do then? <laughs> so you've got this podcast. So how do you distribute it and and how do you promote it and all that kind of thing? Yeah. So I I like to rewind to two years ago when this was me and what we did. And to just note for people that for a while when we shared content, I got seven likes, right? Like it's not like you just create the podcast and immediately a million people love you, right? This is a it takes work and commitment. But when it moves, it's a multiplier that cannot be replicated by any other function in the company and a very few marketing tactics can drive it. And so you need to be in it. Like it's the reason why I don't recommend starting a podcast until you already have a sustainable engine that can hit your goals because the podcast is going to get scrutinized against the goals and they're going to cut it. And so hit the goals first. And then when you open up the podcast, it's one, you mentioned that you you think people are going to like it. And so the only way that you're going to figure out whether or not they like it is to is to share it, right? And share it yeah. and make sure that those right people are seeing it. And so we're into the distribution now. The podcast, long form audio can go on Apple and Spotify. There's plenty of tools that you could publish the audio file and it'll go to all those different places. On the name of the podcast, think about something that's unique that you can search optimize that also reflects your brand positioning or things like that. So when we say state of demand gen, we own demand gen, right? Okay. Other, other people have chose to own B2B growth or B2B marketing. We're probably not going to win there in search. That's okay. And so search inside a podcast can be really effective depending on the volume of searches that are going on there. I'm not sure there's any keyword data on that. So podcast, and then it's taking micro content from those channels and moving it through distribution based on where your audience is. And so for some companies, it could be a Facebook group, could be Instagram paid. It could be LinkedIn organic for a lot of people. It could be YouTube shorts, but most likely it's going to end up being either a paid social distribution channel or LinkedIn organic for B2B. Reddit's a really interesting one for specific buyers as well. And then you need to figure out how to repackage that content, get it into those channels. And then you need to make sure, because I missed on this at the beginning, right? So when I started, I had a thousand followers. Those followers I collected over the past seven years on LinkedIn that do not use the platform or were not marketers or things like that. So when I posted, 
I was basically posting to a ton of people or very few people that were either not on LinkedIn or didn't want to see marketing content. And so if you're going to go organic, you need to make sure the audience is in the organic or you're just going to be putting content out to people that may not want to see it, which is it's a grind to get organic going. At the same time, you could use paid distribution of that content through LinkedIn to guarantee delivery of those people, which might drive followers, might drive engagement, other things like that. And then the place where people, I think, miss on on this after sort of getting the core basics figured out is that they don't do it enough in order to get to the result in any reasonable period of time, right? So we do three podcasts a week here, and we've been doing three podcasts a week for more than a year. And most companies do two podcasts a month. So we're doing 6x the amount of episodes, which allows us to learn way faster, get better production, engage with the audience way more, drive, you know, be higher in the rankings. There's so many reasons to. And so commitment to consistency and volume on this channel, I think is really important. Did we start at one episode a week? Yes, right? You can work up to it, but I think one episode a week is the absolute minimum. A good way to... And I've been recommending this to, to companies. A good way to get this started is to put an event on your calendar once a week where people show up, where you need to have something to do. You need to have something to present. You need to have something valuable. And you want people to keep coming back for that content like we do at Demand Gen Live. So to set a pillar, con- like whoever your subject matter expert is, is locked in at that time once a week to have something to present or go through. I think that's high level how I would think about, about getting that moving. Can you tell me what the link is the LinkedIn organic just posting to your your contacts and they just repost, reshare, re whatever? Some people reshare, like some of my best posts get, you know, 30 to 50 shares. Shares actually on LinkedIn get suppressed by the algorithm actually and so the shares don't get a ton of traction or visibility. The sharing that happens is somebody saying, I'm going to copy that link or I'm going to take a screenshot of this post and I'm going to share it through a different channel, which is dark and difficult to track. And those things you only know by hearing about it. The only reason I know my stuff gets shared in Slack is because a ton of people tell me, right? And so, but people could people could reshare or they just consume, right? And so when people consume and then they engage, if I engage with your post, a lot of my followers would then see your post, which allows you to get exposure. That is called organic reach. That is going down right now because more people are putting content on LinkedIn and more people are putting ads on LinkedIn and there's not enough audience growth. So organic amplification through engagement is going down. And that's just how the dynamics of social platforms work. It was better in 2019 than it was today. It's going to be better today than it is next year. It's just the way that the platform evolves. Okay. Thank you. Cool. We got a few more questions on this topic from our good friend. Jonathan. So let's bring you on audio. Hello. Hey, good to have you on, Jonathan. Thanks. Thanks for the six pillars. I love it. (laughs) And this might be connecting it to to your first topic of today. And I don't want to get between you and David on a good (laughs) debate because we don't have the time or the, (laughs) the energy. But especially because you pulled community into this, it just really crystallizes for me that good marketing in, in this new age of dark funnels and, and uh, six pillars of word of mouth, 
you're better identifying things that go into an active sales funnel and cutting out the waste, but you're also creating this very valuable pool of people that are now in your universe that are not ready to buy right now. And I'm convinced that, uh, and especially with, with Omar's sharing earlier, if you've only got a few thousand people that you can sell, getting people into your orbit is almost as important as getting them into your funnel. And I feel that if, if we're looking for metrics to validate marketing uh, and to get sales excited, it's, it's pick, your, pick your metaphor. Is it a fish in the barrel scenario? Is, is it a stocked uh, game hunting reservation? Um, is it just a, a group of smart people that uh, you're just looking to raise hands in, in six months or, or four quarters down the road? But there's tremendous value there. And I've not heard anybody talk about it in a quantified way beyond somebody's in my community or, or people are, are subscribed to the podcast and it gets wishy-washy, oh, yeah. Yeah. people you know, beg and bang out. But that, that group to me as somebody in revenue, uh, somebody in go-to-market, somebody in a sales role, that is very exciting. And I would want the CX suite to be as excited about that as uh, Meg, they should be about CLV, but they're not. And if there's anything that you can do to heighten the value of that, I think that makes the whole effort 10 times more worthwhile. Yes. Okay. Very well explained. We see this effect with companies that have been with us for more than a year, which is basically that over time, we've created more people in the orbit where we are the brand of choice, but they're not ready to buy right now. So when they realize that they need something in this category, they're going to buy us, Mm -hmm. right? And over time, as you get more of those people in, some of those people are going to self-select and move in while that pool is getting bigger. So you're getting, your pipeline is growing and your orbit is growing. Right. And that's what people want to get to. And then more people start moving out of the orbit and it, it accelerates over time, which is incredibly interesting and an effect that I have not been able to explain as well as you just did. And so, yes, figuring out, and it'd be very difficult to figure out a way to measure that, right? Like the best thing that I can think of off the top of my head would be some type of like brand affinity survey across a lot of different people to understand that, whether what tool do they use, what tool do they prefer, unaided and aided recall. Like those are some things that I, I think, but I recognize that those, those data points, while I think very meaningful, especially at a large scale with a small TAM, don't seem to make the impact that I would expect at the executive level. Yeah, and I, I refuse to dig deep into to ABM because uh, uh, just sounds like complex sales and marketing strategies from the last twenty years with a, a new bow tie on top. But you know, if you're going after the Fortune 1000, if you only have a certain amount of accounts, and you start to get people in this orbit, both sales and marketing and the exec team should agree that if, if one of these people are here and they're not pissed off at us because we're only asking them to buy every quarter with a new white paper or get a piece of content or, or SDR call. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're, I don't know how to quantify it either, but that, that, you know, to me helps diminish the valley of death between sales and marketing and the exec team and get at what's really beneficial is becoming an influential brand. So you can be like Nike in the eighties. You're just everywhere and everybody's buying it because you're doing the marketing and you're providing the environment for sales to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is, you know, that's what I want to do with your, your six pillars and be like, okay, great. Let's create this feeder pool. 
Let's put who's right in the funnel and let's be excited about that because we just spent 50,000 the right way and we didn't burn it on ads and Gartner and, and six other things that don't work. Yeah, uh, this is pretty unrelated to what you just said, but it popped into my head. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it. One of the things that we've been measuring lately for for both our own company and software companies, I'll use it for our own company and then an example with the SaaS company, is our, our sales cycle here is 28 days. Pretty consistent across the board is 28 days for our deals. Um, but we've been starting to measure first touch of the account all the way to the close one deal, which ends up being somewhere between two and three X the sales cycle length of so the first time the account engaged with anything, whether it was attributable or it was account de-anonymization on the website to measure that thing. And so we do the same thing on SaaS companies, see the exact same thing. If they have a 90 day sales cycle, their first account touch to close one deal on average will be somewhere between 180 and 270 days, which is why you need a different expectation on time when you run this model, because you think your sales cycle is 90 days, but the buyer is doing two thirds of it without you. Right. And so in order to get that first initial thing to happen, you actually need to get that account for, to have some type of touch, right? Whether you trigger that touch or they find it on their own, then you start moving into that average and that, maybe there's some type of orbit there. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've attempted to explain it to management as the um, education part of the buying cycle, which is usually that six to 12 months that precedes your active sales of six to 12 months. Mm-hmm. Because they're just not, you know, it's nowhere near their budget. It's nowhere near their timeline. They're a prime target of yours. But if you create an opportunity, you're lying to yourself and, mm-hmm. and others. And, you know, it's just, it, you still want them because they're, they're part of your, your, your key target accounts or, or target verticals or, or whatever, but they're just not ready, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they, they, they shouldn't be in a no man's land. They should be in some positive area of forward momentum for both parties. And, you know, your word of mouth universe is, is a great place. It's just, you know, we're, we're back to how do we quantify it and make people excited. Yeah. So, I'm going to take that as an action because I think that's really interesting, but that data that I'm seeing running it on, companies and our own business mm-hmm. supports the idea that buyers do a majority of the sales process or their their own buying process on their own, which I think a lot of people believe this data supports mm-hmm. that. It also supports that I get that you think that because your 90 day sales cycle, you think that demand is going to make an impact on 90 days. This is for a lot of people listening. This, if you want to, if you want to run and create demand, this piece and taking this measurement inside of your own data to help executives understand how long it takes someone to actually buy when you go out and create new demand, not capture demand that someone else created for you. That's what you need to think about. I'll just leave you with this. It seems to be lost sometimes in conversations across teams. When, when you ask uh, outreach teams to make sure that they cover everything that's Googled before they get on the phone with somebody, buyers can do the same thing. They do the same thing. And and whether you have them in orbit or, or pre-orbit, you know, they're they're coming to the table fully armed with information. Mm-hmm. And they're they're more on their timetables with that information than ever. There, there's no more finding out about the man behind the curtain except the last mile. So mm-hmm. if they're if they're engaged with you, they're in last mile at that point. And it's very hard for early stage companies and even you know mid-stage companies to be driving that you know, mm-hmm. kind of, kind of momentum before somebody's ready. So if you got to figure out the timetable of, of your, your buying market and where you fit in and adjust your, 
some of those numbers you're talking about with their buying patterns accordingly and, and you know, go from there. Cool. Thanks, Pat, man. Good to see you. See Great you. dialogue, Jonathan. Thanks. Thank you. I have one more question from Max on related to the word of mouth pillars. Excited to bring you on, Max. And then some of our regulars have some other questions that I think we'll get to next, if that sounds good, Chris. Of course, yeah. All right. Max, would love to bring you on to ask your G2 question. Thanks, Megan. Hey, Chris. Happy to be here. It's my fourth time on this live podcast. It's really awesome. It's better than, you know, just listening to it. So, so the question is how, like, is there any smart tactic and how to nudge the buyers into writing your reviews and G2 and those sorts of platforms? Cause like it takes some time to fill out the form, right? It's not like a two word thing. So like everybody's busy and then like, I'm in the industry where like, you know, it's not really very common to use these platforms. So like how, do you make the buyers do that given that they love your product? Like what, what would you do? So there's several different layers that you can do. One, when something good happens, you could have trigger a customer success touch or just have customer success on the top of their mind. When somebody says, this is working for me or I'm getting a lot of value to ask them, Hey, it would mean the world to us. If you went to G2 or trust radius or wherever you're going and left a review um, about what you're experiencing. Cause I think a lot of other people could learn and, and potentially get the same impact that you're seeing. That's one. I know that a lot of the review sites have programs where you can give away, like they actually, I think do it for you where they can give someone a gift card in exchange for a review or something like that. I don't know the details, but I, I think that a lot of, of those providers do offer that as a service to get more authentic reviews from customers, or you could try and do that component on your own. But when it comes down to it, you got, two options, either someone wants to give you a review and does it on their own, or you offer some type of incentive or just ask. So I think those are the two type of ways that you can approach it. And then you, I think through testing or reverse engineering to figure out what those, what the best incentive is or what the best way to ask is in order to get the review so that you kind of have a little bit more control over the speed of the way that you get there. Makes sense. I'll try some of these and report back how this works. Something I'll just throw in there, Max, just from my customer success background is based on your product or service, really understanding at what point your typical customer is actually going to receive the most value from the product, right? People talk about time to value. And so what is that aha moment or that moment in the journey where most of your customers are beginning to really realize that working with you is driving that outcome and aligning any asks or any programs that you run to that, right? It's dangerous to ask too early. And so you also need to think about your experience and driving those successful outcomes. It's a prerequisite for someone to write you a good review. And so thinking thoughtfully about that and coordinating any efforts around that particular milestone in the journey is, is um, another way to think about it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, like in our case, Things are complicated a bit by the fact that sales basically talk to customers once a year because the length of the contracts is typically one year. But I guess that just makes one more good reasons for sales to reach out, right, to the customer. Yeah, or another like CS, another function perhaps. But yeah, exactly. We don't have CS. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Sales, Thanks, guys. sales and CS are not that different these days. More and more, they're coming together. Great to have you on, Max. Okay, Charlie has been dying to ask this question and then Blake's next. So Charlie, you have the stage. 
Hey guys, how's it doing? Uh, What's going on? How's your new job? Really, really cool. Um, yeah, do it again. 100% owe Chris and everyone else at Refine Labs for that one. Definitely attributing that to, to Demand Gen Live and you guys. So if you're listening and you want a job, come to the come to the live events. Chris might sort you out. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited for this question, Charlie. Let's have it. My new role. So I've come on and they want me to kind of, you know, they've been looking at what Chris is doing. This company is a client of, of uh, Refine Labs. So you're doing our paid advertising, a lot of PPC, uh, a lot of paid paid social but they wanted me to come in and kind of you know build up and help build up organic uh, really podcast driven stuff and, and coming into that it's a complicated content space mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of new positioning work going on and i'm sure you guys are aware of but it, it's it's split it's highly specialized so you know what i've been thinking about mulling over is how can i collate information to, to get an understanding of the conversations that are going on in, in these spaces to then help guide the podcasting conversations and the content that I create with you know, the subject matter experts within the company. Mm-hmm. And within this process, I got chatting to Ashley, who, you know, one of the products that her company pushes, uh, uh, you know, provides is called um, Curated. And then that had an integration of something called Feedly. And I was looking at Feedly, and this is the kind of software that I want to bring up with you because, and now this is twofold, right? It has the ability to construct this content tracking system just model what's going on and i can use that as a kind of baseline for the conversations i have part two is it has twitter tracking on it and this brings me on as the second part to the whole conversation about commenting and and seeing when people post on linkedin and working out when one of your buying personas from your you know icp is commenting relevance posting relevant stuff that you can comment on and engage them and I see those two things as very related. Totally. So on on the on the Twitter side, I can go to that one. The category is called social listening. There's tools that can do it across a lot of different platforms. One or two platforms now have unlocked LinkedIn, but it's basically just replicates the LinkedIn search function, which is not too valuable. But if I understood you correctly, it's looking for either types of keywords or hashtags or different things like that, or perhaps account, maybe people or accounts that then you can get a stream of those so that you can jump into the conversation on Twitter, right? That's a great strategy, especially when going in with the right intent and being able to add to the conversation, right? So that one's good. I'm not sure if this was part of your question, but I'm going to throw it out there because I've been a marketer in industries that are complex with complex buyers where I didn't have a lot of understanding before and I needed to quickly get my arms around and be able to speak to a neonatologist or a pediatric intensivist at a level where they, you know, find me credible. And so the things that I did there that might be helpful for you in this space is to identify who are the people that my customers listen to, right? And then start listening to them and then try to build relationships with them and then try to create content with them. That's the move. And so it's sort of like a market research, but also an overtime and influencer play but you get the initial part is learning. And then if you're able to keep going, you can actually start to move into more of a relationship. I've done that with several people that were incredibly influ- influential in like medical healthcare before. And meanwhile, also learn from some of the best people. So I'm not sure if that was directly related to your question, but I thought it was interesting given the space that you're in 
and I understand that it's complex. But was there one other part of it that I that I missed? Something about Feedly? Yeah, I guess if I can re- re- rephrase it, you know, briefly, LinkedIn is great. Like I connected with you guys through LinkedIn. You know, you you've really grown and built you know your business and built a really a community through LinkedIn, right? And LinkedIn is popular with us because it helps connect us with people, you know, ultimately who we can connect with as professionals, learn, and it helps us drive revenue in our organizations and sell, right? You know, those two things are related, clearly. But LinkedIn doesn't want to take you directly to that value. Like it wants you to spend as much time on the platform. And that's the kind of tension because you're sitting on LinkedIn and you want to find and go to the people who are giving you the information, but it's not designed to do that. It's designed to make you scroll through 20 posts and spend 30 minutes on it before you get to the one you want. That's what I'm trying to nail down on here. Like, how can we just reduce the time we're spending on LinkedIn going through everything before getting to the value we're looking for by 90%? Because I think there is such a possibility to do that. And imagine what we could do at that time. I'm not exactly sure what you're doing on LinkedIn, but I think a lot of people feel like I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I spend less than an hour on LinkedIn every day. Right. And so I post. I engaged with the comments on my post yesterday. I was super busy from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And I didn't comment on any of the comments that were left there. And I still feel it. So I'm going to try and get to those after this, this meeting because I just want to reply to comments. But anyway, and other than that, I'm going to log in, look at a couple of the top posts because the algorithm for me does know what things that I want to see. I think it's because you change industries and you're going from marketing to cybersecurity that you're not seeing the cybersecurity posts that you want. Right. And so you might have, it might be part of your job to retrain the algorithm through your behavior to start to prioritize those posts. And the way that you do that is through engaging with the, with the specific posts that you want to see from the specific people. And the algorithm is not that sophisticated. It figures out pretty quickly. You comment on two posts, that thing becomes the first thing you see every time. And so I think it's about having more of a plan about what are the activities that I want to do and then how do I fit them in? And then don't beat yourself up. Like I mentioned about the comments, just because I didn't get to any of the comments, I'm, it is what it is. I was busy yesterday, right? And so it's like LinkedIn is one part of your plan. What are the other parts of your plan that you have throughout your day? And then just fit in the parts of LinkedIn that you that you need. Yeah, good, great, Chris. As always, you've, you've answered my question there. Yeah, the moment you said retrain it in, in our room, that was yeah pr- pretty obvious. I should have uh, realized that one. But you got yeah, it, brother. Again. Happy to help. Cheers, Cheers. All right, Blake, you've been really patient. I think you got a fun question bringing you on live to ask. Hey, guys, how's it going? Hey, good to see you. Great to see you. Awesome. Yeah, good seeing you guys. Yeah, so my question is related to events. So we're in a pretty traditional industry and like events are a big part of that, like conferences, the whole the whole mix. Um so we've been, you know, planning to go to a couple of like our national shows which are a little bit bigger. And I was actually at one in Phoenix uh, last week. And when I was there in the booth, I like remembered, Chris, what you had talked about, about creating content and like getting a suite. And it just kind of like clicked for me about like, oh my gosh, this would be like the greatest thing to do. Cause it just, you've got everybody there. You would just need to have a crew set up, get a little spot. And you could literally like talk to people that you would never get access to otherwise. So I was hoping that like my question is kind of like a 1A and a 1B. For like the 1A part, I was wondering, what did you do in the past that you found was successful in creating, you know, content to be distributed digitally in the past at conferences? And then my 1B for that would be, what would you do differently if you were going in knowing what you know now about, you know, creating content, distributing it online? Cool. 
So we've done a couple of things that worked really well. One of them was kind of like run and gun and going up to people and basically asking them questions and stitching together something like one of them that hit really hard was like, why did you become a respiratory therapist? Then we asked 30 people and then we stitched all that together. And then we ran media against respiratory therapists as a brand play. It was one of the most effective campaigns we did. So that's something that you can do depending on your buyer. You could figure out how to weave that in. It obviously takes a little bit of courage just roll up to random people and ask them a question with a camera. So you'd like, it worked really well for us and people had a lot of fun with it. We also had them, we asked a different question. It was like, who was the most influential person in your career? And then we ran that. And then we asked that in the ad. And then a ton of people tagged the person that was most influential in their career in the comments of the thing. And it got massive earned engagement because of that, that move. Cause the headline, like you would see in my LinkedIn post, I've literally been running media with that type of headline since 2017, right? Who was the most influential person or who, you know, who inspired you to be a respiratory therapist? I'm not exactly sure what the question was. And people would just tag a bunch of people and there was a bunch of great stuff in there. That's one, it's a little bit more like a brand play. Another thing that we've done based on the people is that if you understand the different people and what type of either research or expertise they have, we put together roundtables of people that would never be all four together except for that one time that year to talk about a specific topic that was incredibly progressive that they all have different views and could collaborate on. That one worked really well as a long form that then moved into an audio podcast, long form video to audio podcast. And then you can just do the 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 normal, just like set up an interview and and host a essentially a live video podcast at the conference with a bunch of different people. Those are the three that I found that work pretty well. I'm sure that there are other ones that other people have tried. In terms of what would I do differently, I'll add a couple of things that I would definitely continue to do is get as many of them scheduled in advance as you can. So plan what you want to do, who's going to be there, who you want to have together and try and get it all locked in. Because once people get there, it's incredibly hard to get scheduled. People are doing a bunch of things. They got sessions, they got meetings, they're meeting people. Try and get it locked in before. Another thing that I'd recommend is trying to get them done as early in the conference as you can. And so those are a couple of things that I would definitely do in terms of what I would do. um, What I would do differently is that I would have done more. Normally it was centered around one or two big pillar type of content pieces. And I would think about how to do, do more with that to get more out of it. Another thing that I would consider that I've never done before is to host an event where the round table is actually an event with a live audience that you can then go into Q and a or different things. That would be a, a second thing that I would definitely try. Okay. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. Cause I was even thinking, it'd be like, man, it'd be great to just get like a huge Airbnb, like offsite and like have like a little mini event and like get it catered and just have like a round table discussion or something like that. So no, that's super helpful. I appreciate that, Chris. Cool. I'm glad that you kind of like got the spark because once you get it, there's just like a path of a bunch of, you know, more effective things than stand in the booth like I did when I got this epiphany. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. No, it's definitely one of those things where yeah, you're standing there and it's like, you haven't talked to somebody in like an hour and you're like, what can I be doing with this time? You know, that's supplement this, that <laughs> uh, could be making this effective. So no, appreciate that guys. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks Blake. That was a great question. I think Bob had a quick one for a meeting he has. I'm going to bring you on Bob to ask. And then I feel like we have a third agenda item that we, that we didn't get to. 
Of course we do. Bob, what's up? Good hey, so I, hey, good to see you. So I have a um, meeting with the CEO tomorrow. And the question was about your, um, your metric that you use. You've talked before about sales qualified opportunities. You consider sales qualified opportunities when they're at 50% to, cl- you know, deals that are 50% to close, I believe you said before. Um, My question to you. That's just to clarify, people, whatever, uh, there's, I think, three or four criteria. But the main one is that they hit a stage where you're going to win those opportunities at greater than 20% with predictability is like, I think one of the main components, but also they've talked to and they've had a discovery and or demo with an account executive, not an SDR, that there's an amount attached to the opportunity and it didn't move immediately to close lost after following that initial meeting. Okay, so 20% to close stage then, big yep. difference. And then my other question to you is, what is a reasonable percentage from contact request to that SQO definition? What, what would be a reasonable expectation for an early stage startup? It can be, depending on how people are getting to the contact form, it can be as low as 1% to 3%, and it could be as high as 40 to 80%. And so... Say primarily from paid social, Facebook. Direct response on paid social, I would say it's 10% or less. Okay. So that's a reasonable expectation then. Um, yeah, I think most people, when they build a model around performance marketing, paid social, they plan on 3% of the amount of leads that they get, get to SQL, which means that, that means an SDR booked a meeting and the meeting hasn't even been sat, sat with yet. SQO is farther than that. So they're playing on 3%. There's going to be attrition. So it's probably less one to one and a half percent after 50% of people no show. And so if you're doing 10%, you're, you're knocking out of the park. Perfect. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Bob. Good luck with your meeting. Chris, uh, why don't you close this out with the final agenda topic? So the final agenda topic, and we'll uh, try and get everyone out of here at a reasonable hour, especially for the people on the East Coast, is what I'm continuing to see as the big problem that companies face when they only focus on capturing demand, which is a large amount of companies. And it's starting to really hurt them right now, specifically in Google, but also in other pay-per-lead, pay-per-click activities because the prices are going up and the conversion rates are going down. And that's just the dynamics of how these channels are going to work and they're not going to get any better. And so the big problem that companies face here, and I wrote the agenda, but maybe it's actually two core problems. And so one of them is that if you're only capturing demand, there is a specific amount of demand that's in there. And what happens is that companies continue to scale budget and hit ridiculous diminishing returns beyond that, and they don't know what to do. So that's the companies that spend $1.2 million on Google when they should be spending 100K because they don't have any other channel and they're just gonna scale it up and they measure on MQLs and they don't see anything else and they don't see the huge inefficiencies that are created inside of that system. So we have massive diminishing returns uh, in channels that get scaled too far beyond the amount of market demand that get you use Google algorithms, go with broad match keywords, use super low intent, like lower intent than an ebook conversion, like time on site or to more than two pages viewed in Google Analytics as a conversion inside of Google search to pretend like their Google ads are doing something. Those become problems when you when you only focus on capturing demand. But a really, really big problem 
is that when you are not out creating demand, somebody else is going to do it and they're going to steal your customers. And they're going to take that demand that's right now going through a generic search that you are fighting to capture on paid search or in organic. And they're going to win before that. And that company is going to go in and they're not going to make the generic search anymore. They're going to search for your competitor's brand and you're going to lose that and consistently lose that over time, which is why you must build a brand and create demand. And so I'm not sure that there's, I'm not sure that there's much more to say about this, but that is really the clear thing that's going to happen. If you look at companies that compete with us or we compete with, which I don't actually see it that way, that have continued to run their SEO, SEM strategy and their live off referrals and go in there like all of the lead aggregators, they're going to pass stuff into go pass stuff into agencies. And now people are just funneling right through Refine Labs and not even considering that search. And as that continues to happen more, I'm going to steal more and more of their customers. And anyone on this Zoom that has a competitor that's wasting a lot of money in search, which by the way, is almost every SaaS company at this point, that you could be smarter, you could create demand and build a brand and redirect that traffic directly to you. And when you do that, other companies don't even get into the competitive set. I don't know how I like when I say this, most companies, I don't think will be able to fully understand what I'm trying to communicate here is that a majority of people that come and talk about working together with Refine Labs are not even looking at a second vendor. And you can do that for a software product. I buy plenty of software products without ever considering a second vendor. And a lot of people do it whether or not they admit it. And that is what you want. You want to be able to have a category. You want to be the leader in the category. You want to be the, the leading brand that people know, that people come through and go directly to you and don't even consider. And as that happens more and more, your win rates go up. Your sales cycle lengths go down. More, you have more customers. It starts to feel word of mouth. It's like this revolving, revolving system. And so I couldn't push people harder. I have over the past 60 days, I've had too many conversations with companies that have not done anything but spend $500,000 to a million dollars a month on $50 leads through either Google search, lead aggregators, paper lead, those are, and, or review sites. Those are kind of the big ones. And those companies are, are in a really challenging spot because of the, lack, the amount of resources that have been, and organizational processes that have been built around that money doing that, that, driving that specific outcome that it will be challenging to change. They've also built their entire set of resources around optimizing for that specific outcome. And so they don't have, they probably don't have the organizational talent to go out and create demand. Otherwise, they'd probably already be doing it, right? So they have to go out and find talent. They need to actually get executive buy and they need to get it to work. They need to figure out what they're going to do when they shut off all of the wasted money and don't have all of these MQLs. You get put in a really tough spot. And that's what, if you are a smaller challenger brand or you know you have a competitor that's larger than you, I would wager to guess that mo your competitor is doing what I just said. Maybe not at the extreme that I just mentioned, but that's what a lot of companies are in a position for. And so if you're trying to go and compete with them, you can actually go and do some of the things that we're talking about and move buyers through that flow that I just said and start to, over time, take market share. This is what I did when I worked at a $30 million company and we competed with a $5 billion company. The $5 billion company wastes all their marketing dollars. And what I did is try to make all of the marketing dollars that we had work 10x better. I love that. And I think the six pillars of the word of mouth are the things that you should be focusing on to actually create demand. Mm -hmm. 
comes full pillar, six pillars of word of mouth. There's probably some other tactics in there. I'll try and figure out how to wrap, wrap a bow on that. So it's clear for everyone, but yeah. All right, everyone. It's been awesome to see you all. Thanks for the uh, 41 people that have stuck around till 9.02 at night. Um, Tuesday night is my favorite thing to do is spend time with you. And so appreciate all you coming on. appreciate the dialogues. David, great, great chat. Thank you for the comments. I'm going to re-listen to that and think about some of the things that we can we can do to move that, that ball forward. Shout out to Omar for some of the work that he's doing in that story. I think some people can learn from that. And so, um, again, just grateful that you are here. Appreciate your participation and hope to see you again next week. See you next Tuesday, everyone. Have a good week. Bye, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.